Do not be anxious about anything. Really? Let me say four quick things about anxiety. One, there's a fine line between anxiety and a legitimate concern. If your two-year-old child is playing in the street, I'd be surprised to hear you say, I'm not anxious about it. If you were to get a call that someone close to you has been placed on a ventilator due to COVID-19, I'd be surprised to hear you say, I'm not anxious about it. There are obviously some things about which we should be concerned. There's a fine line between anxiety and legitimate concern. Jesus, after all, sat on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem one day and was so concerned about the city He loved that He wept over her. Today's text is not about legitimate concern. Two, there is such a thing as clinical anxiety, a condition we don't choose. An innate propensity for worry, fear, a sense of doom, even paranoia. Someone who's a victim of that clinical anxiety is no more to be shamed or ashamed than I am for having an underactive thyroid. So let me be clear that there are those who suffer from a diagnosable psychological condition, a clinical anxiety. For those who struggle with that deep-seated anxiety to, to have someone tell you, just don't worry, or to quote scripture saying not to worry, can actually, can actually worsen your anxiety. If you have clinical anxiety, if you have a, an unusual sense that things are really bad, then God would want you to be cared for by a professional. Anti-anxiety meds sh probably should not be a first step, but they might be eventually a good and proper step. Three, anxi anxiety may be a spiritual wake-up call. Anxiety sometimes is like a warning light on the control panel of our souls. Not long ago, a signal came up on my car's instrument panel, panel, maintenance overdue. I became a bit anxious about that. How long overdue? Is it going to harm the engine to drive it? Was that a bad anxiety? No, that's an appropriate concern. My car needed maintenance and I needed to pay attention to that. But I didn't have time to have it seen about. I was, I was too busy. My anxiety didn't go away, though, until I took the time to go and sit and let professionals work on my car. Listen, maybe there are th sinful behaviors or thoughts in our lives that are causing that deep anxiousness. If so, God's Spirit is not going to give you peace until you rid yourself of the source of your anxiety. Four, as I understand it, and as I'm using it today, there's a slight difference between worry and anxiety. Worry usually is associated with something specific, something particular, particular, a potential problem or even crisis. Generally, anxiety is not specific to one particular thing. It's a general feeling of uneasiness, of, of apprehension. To review, I'm not talking today about legitimate concern I'm not talking about clinical anxiety for which professional care is needed. I'm not talking about anxiety caused by sin in our lives. And I'm not talking about worry regarding some certain thing. I'm talking rather about a general and underlying uneasiness, a sense of foreboding. I'm talking about angst and apprehension, doubt and dread, nervousness, restlessness, uneasiness. Now, with all that said, in the longest sermon introduction ever,
Let's talk about those words, do not be anxious about anything. God obviously does not want us to be anxious despite the kinds of uncertainties and difficulties we now face. Do not be anxious about anything, he tells us in his word. We heard that read just a few minutes ago. But it doesn't stop there. God didn't simply say, stop being anxious. He offered us, offered us the antidote to anxiety. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses all understanding, understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God. This is no ordinary peace. It's not a Pollyanna brand of peace. It's not some happily ever after kind of peace. Neither is it some passing, fleeting kind of peace. It is a, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God kind of peace. Much like the peace in the depths of the sea that is undisturbed though a violent storm is churning the ocean's surface. Peace which transcends all understanding. Or as one translator has it, a peace that blows the mind. It is a peace that cannot be described it must be experienced. Peace that transcends all understandings will guard your hearts and your minds. The peace of which Paul wrote is an active peace, actively guarding our hearts and minds. It's been, it's been suggested that because Philippi was a military settlement, its citizens were accustomed to seeing the soldiers patrolling the city walls. Perhaps you can imagine a leader of the Philippian church reading this letter from Paul aloud about anxiety and pointing out that the crude, through the crude windows of the house church to the sentries on the walls of the city, pointing out those sentries and saying, just like those soldiers are guarding our lives and our property, God's peace is guarding our hearts and minds. And so God's peace guards the hearts, the emotions and minds, the thoughts of those who follow Jesus. Against what does this peace guard us? Guard us against being overwhelmed by fear, against being shanghaied by despair, against being overrun by Satan who would love to wreak havoc on our emotions and our thoughts. This does not mean that we'll be completely shielded from pain and heartache, of course. It does mean that we will not be overwhelmed by it. Once a writer described two paintings, both of which were intended to depict peace. One was the picture of a tranquil lake, a cloudless sky, fields unruffled by the wind, dead calm. But the man confessed that he couldn't identify with that kind of peace, a rather artificial, idealistic peace. Yet the writer described a second painting, the background of which was a storm at sea. The waves were high and violent. The clouds were ominously black and from them flashed fierce lightning. One could almost hear the deafening, frightening thunder, the kind that strikes fear even in the heartiest of souls. But there, in the foreground, was a cleft, a crack or crevice in the side of a huge rock. And in that cleft sat a dove on her nest, a dove that, that sat peacefully protected, though the storm raged all around her. That, the writer said, is the kind of peace which he knew, a peace in the middle of the storm, a a peace that often was in stark contrast to his surroundings. Rare is the life in, 
in which storm clouds do not sometimes gather. But for followers of Jesus, He is the rock of ages, the cleft in which we hide to find peace during the storms. Do not be anxious about anything, He tells us in His Word. We heard that read a few, a few minutes ago. But it doesn't stop there. God did not simply say, stop being anxious. He offered us the antidote to anxiety. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he didn't stop there either. Finally, brothers, he said, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen from me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. We can choose, at least to a great degree, what we think about. We can check our thoughts. Years ago, Richard Carlson wrote a popular series of Don't Sweat the Small Stuff books. Carlson calls worry a thought attack. And he says, the next time you have a thought attack, tell yourself, whoops, there I go again. We can practice that. When our thoughts go to worry, we can say, whoops, there I go again. That sounds, like an, sounds an awful lot like those words from Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. I don't mean to oversimplify anxiety, but sometimes thinking about positive things, not anxious things, is a choice. It might mean turning off the news once in a while instead of setting, sitting anxiously in front of the TV for hours. It might mean saying to your nervous friends that you want to talk about something else besides all the things they're nervous about. It might mean catching yourself when your mind drifts into the shadows. Hey, knock it off. Get back out here, thoughts. Get back out here in the sunshine. And by the way, we're going to have to choose our thoughts in the new normal. That's a common phrase nowadays, isn't it? The new normal. Even when things open up again, experts say things are going to be different. Maybe we'll all wear masks. No more shaking hands and hugging for a while. Sports teams might play with no fans for a while. Your waiters at the restaurants might have on gloves and there might be fewer tables in the dining room for a while. The new normal, that's, that's likely to make us anxious, isn't it? Ernest Campbell is a great Southern writer who told a story about the California Angels, now the Los Angeles Angels Major League Baseball team. In the 1980s, they were in a close race for the playoffs. In one particular game, the Angels seemed to have a lock on a victory, but they let the game slip away and it was a tough loss. Afterward, a reporter spoke to one of the Angels' veteran players. The reporter noted what a devastating blow the loss must, loss must be and how the loss put in jeopardy the team's hopes to get into the postseason. The player answered, Yes, that was a devastating loss. 
one of the most disappointing of my career. Then he said something that helps me say what I'm trying to say today. The player said to the reporter, but that, that one is over and we'll just have to stop wanting that one. There might be some things we do well to stop wanting. Let me offer an important caveat here. I, I don't want to rob anyone of a dream. I believe in miracles and I believe passionately in, in following God-given dreams. But sometimes the ideal life, the life of our dreams, is just not going to happen. It could be as simple as having to wear masks and not shaking hands for the foreseeable future. It could mean having to find a different job. It could be as significant as suffering a devastating disappointment, being deeply disappointed in someone you love, being deeply disappointed in yourself. Sometimes life just doesn't turn out, turn out like we'd planned. The Jerusalemites could tell you that. They were far from home. The Babylonians had marched in and overpowered the city of Jerusalem. Most of those not killed by the Babylonians were taken captive back to Babylon, present-day Iraq. Having been forcibly removed from their homes was, of course, traumatic. Their hearts were broken. Living in Babylon was awful for those who loved and remembered Jerusalem. And every morning, those Jewish refugees would awaken and look out their Babylonian windows, only to be painfully reminded that their lives were not what they would choose them to be. They were homesick and hurting, for this was not what any of them would have chosen as their station in life. And God said, there are plenty of prophets of positive thinking who are peddling their preposterous promises. Don't listen to them, God said. Build houses and settle down. Plant, plant your gardens and tend them. Go ahead and get married. Work hard to make the place where you live peaceful and prosperous. For if your new home does well, you'll do well. You. Might wish, he said, you were in Jerusalem, but at least for now, he said to them, Babylon is home. Sometimes you just have to choose to accept a new normal. Choosing to be thankful and to guard our thoughts, that's going to be important even when the restrictions are loosened or when your dream gets shattered and your hearts get broken. The Bible says, choose your thoughts. I don't have a lot of answers, but I know God loves you with an unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love. And of all the things that are true, honorable, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, it is the love of Almighty God. George Matheson wrote the hymn titled, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Matheson went blind when he was 18 years old. When he found out his, that he was going blind, his fiancée broke up with him. Yet, with the aid of his sister, he continued to study. He was studying for the ministry, so his sister learned Greek and Hebrew so that she could help him in his biblical studies. Matheson went on to become an outstanding minister in the Church of Scotland. He wrote that hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, on June 6 of 1882. That day, his sister had gotten married. He felt terribly alone for his sister, who had been an extension of himself, 
had a new life now. But in that season of such deep disappointment, he wrote, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. If your soul is weary, then answers or explanations won't give you any relief. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. I remember a line from Dennis Parker in the part of the interview we showed a couple of weeks ago. I want you to see that. And that was the whole glory point of Jesus. The glory point of Jesus is there's this, there's this thing where people think, you know, I can't show up to church. I'm too sinful. That's the whole thing, you know? <laughs> you know, Jesus doesn't love me any more now than when I was living behind Costco. He loved me the same. And, and there's this whole, in my eyes, you know, I'm gonna, it's, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna shock God by coming to him. He's shocked by my sin. He knew exactly who I was. He knew exactly everything that I'd done. And he still loved me. That's, that'll change your life. If you really honestly understand and know and believe that God loves you despite you, it'll change your that's life. That's grace. It's grace. Every bit of it, you know. Yes, that's grace, all right. The unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love of God for us, despite us. No, there are not any easy answers. I can't shed a lot of light on the question why. One might say we are in the dark. Reminds me of a story with which I will close. Many years ago, the late George W. Truett, one of my pastor heroes, told of a young man in his church whose wife died after a short illness, leaving behind a little girl of about five. After the funeral, several friends and family members begged the young man to bring his daughter and stay with them for a while. But he was determined to go home. That first night was obviously very difficult, and the next day he told just how hard that night had been. His little girl had cried for a long time before she went to sleep. Her dad sat next to her on the bed and stroked her hair. Finally, she said, I can't go to sleep, Daddy. And then she added, Daddy, I can't even see you. It is so dark. But, Daddy, you love me even though it's dark, don't you? You love me even though I can't see you, don't you, Daddy? Her dad reached over into her bed and took his little girl into his arms. He held her there until she finally drifted off to sleep. Remembering what his daughter had said, the young man prayed, Father, it is dark as midnight. I cannot see you at all. But you love me even if it's dark, don't you? And there holding his little girl in a lonely room, a broken-hearted young daddy and widower chose to believe God loved him, though he could not see God. Darkness falls across, across even the best of lives. Sometimes that darkness comes in the form of blindness, which cannot be explained by pointing fingers and asking whose sin caused the blindness, or, or by pandemics that cannot be explained with the simplistic answers. But God is there in the darkness. And He loves you with a tender love, even when you can't 
see Him. It is a love that will not let you go. It is a love that, if embraced, will give rest to your weary soul.